will start today's session with a conversation with Venk Shukla from Monte Vista Capital. Venk and I have known each other for a very long time. We were just chatting um, when we saw each other last. We're also both MIT alums, and um, it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to have you back here, Venk. I'm looking forward to catching up. Uh, I think we last had you over at this um, forum when you were just about launching Monte Vista Capital, and, and you were still, I think, running Thai Angels. Is that, does that ring a bell? Uh, Venk, I think you're on mute. Oh, okay. There you go. Better. Go ahead. Can you hear now? Yes, we can hear now. Okay. Uh, so, yeah, no, I, last time when we talked, you see, I just, uh, uh, you know, I was no longer leading Thai Angels and I had started, uh, I had started uh, Monte Vista Capital, yes. Those were the early days of Monte Vista Capital. So tell us a bit about what, uh, what has happened and how have you been um, evolving Monte Vista Capital? What are the learnings? What are, what is the, you know, where are you now in your thinking? Yeah, you know it's been a it's been a very very interesting journey. I think a uh, uh, couple of things you see uh, a couple of things got validated. I think uh, one is that uh, if I hang around with people my age, uh, people talk about their health, people talk about their children, or complain about Trump. Uh, but uh, if I but with entrepreneurs. You are meeting the most optimistic people in the uh, in the world. Uh, some of them are irrationally optimistic, but it doesn't matter. The enthusiasm that they have, uh, you know, optimism that that they have, is a rubs off on you. And the second thing is that I liked about uh, being a VC is that everyone who you know who comes to us is an expert in some area, and uh, and they they patiently teach you what they know. So I found that if you're intellectually curious, this is the fastest way of learning about a whole lot of things in the world. And yeah. uh, I found that I found that you see to be a uh, to be a you know a very very enlightening kind of a part of uh, being a VC. And the third one that I found to my own surprise was that uh, uh, that. I actually add value. I mean, I think the fact that, you see, I've been a serial entrepreneur and I've been involved in so many different companies, I think uh, does give some perspective that entrepreneurs find uh, very helpful. You know, sometimes yeah. you, you take uh, you take what you know for granted and only when uh, you interact with others to see who, you know, when they give you that feedback that this, they found that valuable, you realize that, you're, that you are adding some value. And uh, so that has been, you see, a very, very, uh, you know, very, very interesting part of the journey. And the fourth one is really that uh, the fourth, the key thing you see learning for me has been that uh, uh, it teaches you really humility. You think that uh, you are, uh, you, you think that, uh, you know, when you invest in something, uh, you're investing with conviction, of course. But uh, what happens to the company over the years Every time is a very unique, and every time is a very novel experience. And uh, you know, it's very hard, you see, for as a VC, to uh, to 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 really predict, you see, the future course of 
action. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, it's like a, a six digit lottery number. And uh, as an experienced VC, you probably know, know one or two digits. The other four digits are still a mystery. Yeah. You know, I, um, I echo a lot of what you're saying. Um, because we see so many companies, it's been an incredible learning experience for me too. And it's, uh, you know, on a weekly basis, we uh, get an opportunity to work with so many companies from so many different market segments. And also we have the media side of One Million by One Million where we also learn from entrepreneurs and what they're doing and so forth. That is probably one of my, you know, favorite parts of my journey is just the, the structure that I have in One Million by One Million that exposes me to so much. And, and, and I, I am very intellectually curious and, and I'm kind of like a sponge and I, feel very humble how little I know about all these different segments that we are working with. But at the same time, there are, um, you know, there are methodology elements that we have come up with in doing this for such a long time that apply to a lot of different scenarios. So we have, you know, different kinds of playbooks that we have come up with. And if you're doing something in this kind of a business model in you know, let's say you're doing B2B selling to small businesses, there's a playbook for that. If you're doing B2B selling to enterprises, there's a playbook for that. If you're doing B2C transaction revenue, there's a playbook for that, stuff like that. And, and it's been really interesting. The, the, the value addition is more this knowledge of the playbooks and the, um, you know, more predictable steps. And then there is the market that always surprises. So, yeah. Great. If you have a play, if you have a playbook for VCs, uh, please share it with me. <laughs> well, um, we can talk about some of that. We've seen, of course, now we've talked to, you know, several hundred VCs who have been doing, you know, smaller funds and interested in early stage. So we have learned quite a bit, and uh, we can talk about some of that uh, today. Um, let's start though with um, with where you are investing right now. Uh, you know, for our audience to understand your investment thesis and, you know, what size fund, what size check do you want to write, what kind of validation do you want to see before you're willing to write a check? So, you know, we invest in B2B. Uh, we typically invest, you see, in our backyard, which is uh, Northern California. And uh, we typically write, uh, <clears throat> you know, check, you see, of, uh, uh, you know, a million dollars. Uh, it could be it could be smaller if if there is a <clears throat> if they have raised if they have other investors in the in the mix or it could be as high as 1.5 million dollars and in terms of stage you know it could be just a one or two person you see with an idea uh, with nothing there we 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 have found that you see we tend to be pretty unusual in that regard mm-hmm. that uh, we don't you know that if we like the idea if we like the founder uh, you know, even if it's just a, a, a glint in the eye of the founder, we are willing to add a check. Mm-hmm. And um, would you say that everything that you're investing in in B2B then is SaaS model, um, subscription revenue, and you know, you're you're basically metricing on MRR, ARR. You know, it's not necessarily uh, just enterprise. I mean, not just SaaS. 
there are three categories that really we, you know, if I were to sort of look back and try to find a pattern is here among the investments we made in the first fund and in the second fund. I think mm-hmm. the three sort of patterns kind of stand out. One is, uh, one is, uh, cloud or application infrastructure. Yeah. Uh, uh, the second is, uh, and that doesn't have to be SaaS. Uh, the second one is, uh, is enterprise software, which is, which is more often SaaS. And, uh, and then the third category is application of uh, cutting edge technologies to traditional industries and with a view to completely transforming them. Uh, so there are, uh, so in every fund, you see, we like, uh, you know, we like those entrepreneurs who, uh, who have some unique technology insight about how a traditional industry uh, with application of technology could be completely transformed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that may or may not be uh, SaaS, but, uh, but it's typically software. Mm-hmm. Okay. And uh, what what is the fund situation? It's been a while, so you're probably on, on a second or third fund at this point? Yeah, the first fund was $10 million. Yeah. Uh, the second fund was $15 million. And right now we are in the process of, uh, we're just kick-starting the process of raising a third fund of $50 million. Okay. And how many companies have you invested in from uh, first and second um, so first, first fund we first fund we invested in 22 companies, okay. and then we realized that uh, the companies that we are getting uh, are very good companies. Uh, so we don't need to. Uh, so we should take a more concentrated position because our operating philosophy is to work very closely with the entrepreneurs. Yeah. Uh, so so we decided that we don't need to invest in so many companies. Uh, <clears throat> all that we need to do is put more money in a smaller number of companies. Uh, you know, so, so the second fund is we have invested only in 13 companies, even though the fund was 50% bigger. And in the third fund also we take the same approach, which is uh, invest only in up to 15 companies in the third fund. Okay. So um, now in all this, if you were to look back on the, you know, let's say 30-odd companies that you've invested in across the funds, which ones are concept stage ventures that you have invested in without anything already built? Practically every one of them. Every one of them. Interesting. Very interesting. That's, that's actually unique. And here's something. I'm going to give you some feedback on what's happening in the venture capital world and what people are doing right now based on our, you know, discussions with hundreds of them, there's a lot of money available for companies that are doing some level of validation work and ideally generating some level of traction. So, you know, people vary their investment pieces. So, you know, the the early stage has splintered into pre-seed, seed, post-seed, pre-series A, small series A, large series A. And, and in that spectrum, there are people who are investing in, you know, companies with a 15 million ARR, less, uh, sorry, MRR, if you're doing SaaS. Some people look for a million dollar uh, annual recurring revenue, which is about 
80K, 90K uh, MRR uh, before they're willing to write a check. So people have picked up different, you know, milestones for validation and then they're coming in to those stages. The, the capital that is willing to invest on just concept stage ventures is very, very limited. So I will first and foremost congratulate you on uh, that investment thesis because that is, that is a style of venture capital that, you know, dates back to my youth and, and that is disappearing in a way. So I'm, I'm really thrilled to hear that you are still practicing that, you know, hardcore, you know, pure form, pure play venture capital. And you're writing large checks to, uh, it sounds like you're putting in a million dollars into concept stage ventures. That's also quite rare. Yeah, you know, I think uh, we try to syndicate. Uh, we have a number of times we try to syndicate if you have a, you know, our investment. And every single time we found that there aren't that many people is willing to uh, to bet you see, on a company with which has nothing except a couple of founders. And uh, so we pretty much, you know, so unless the founder has already found someone, you see, we don't waste our time anymore on it. We just say, okay, we are willing to take the risk. Uh, we know that a million is not going to, a million is not going to get you very far. It will certainly not prepare you for Series A, but at least it will get you maybe far enough so that someone else see, may want to invest at that stage, and we are willing to take that risk that uh, you may not get it, and we'll have to be shut down. Right. So um, now. In that context, you already have a question from the audience, and I was about to ask you the same question as geography. Are these all Silicon Valley companies? Yeah, yeah. I think uh, that's one lesson that we learned, uh, that, you know, our style is such that uh, we like to, uh, you know, we, we like to help companies, you see, with, uh, you know, uh, we like to interview, see, the first employees. We like to, uh, you know, help them, you see, think through in terms of the, strategy and the product market fit, you see, and, and uh, a lot of things, things that impact on culture. Uh, the mm -hmm. first, the first 50, 100 decisions that founders make, it, you know, essentially, uh, you know, puts the foundation of the company and we want to be involved in those kind of uh, conversations. So we found that, uh, that physical proximity, see, makes a difference. Now, yeah. if this if this virtual way of meeting is it continues forever, then then the justification for investing only in Northern California would go away. Uh, but uh, but it looks like this thing physical thing is uh, you know is not that far away. Another another couple of quarters we might still be able to meet for coffee. What I find is that uh, you know if you, if, if physical proximity allows us to sort of structured or unstructured you know, kind of a drop-in conversations. And, uh, you know, that gives us, you see, a better insight uh, into uh, the same time zone. You know, we we have standard kind of a policy that anyone that we invest in, you see, has a right to talk to us anytime mm -hmm. they need they need to. So it doesn't matter if it's 11 o'clock at night, if it's weekend, it's a holiday. I, I think if they think that it's important, they should just call. And with time zone, it becomes very difficult. Yeah. And uh, do you still maintain uh, some of the you – you've worked a lot in the India-U.S. corridor. Do, you, do, do your companies tend to have uh, an India 
you know, back end as they scale? You know, it's not. Uh, uh, it's not. It's not given. It's not mandated. I think different uh, companies are making different trade-offs. Uh, some some companies do have uh, India uh, a back-end and a very very aggressive and a very big size presence in India. Uh, but a lot of others you see don't. They are just some of them are purely Silicon Valley based. Some of them say have, have uh, you know Eastern European employees. Some of them say have. Uh, some of them have actually employees in Pakistan. Uh, some of them see are, you know, in Midwest or, or East Coast. Uh, so they're, you know, this all over the place. Yeah. So, uh, my next question, Venk, is something that we, I think, touched upon a little bit when we spoke, uh, some time ago when you were, when you were getting started. Um, so in the, in the fund strategies, one of the things we are seeing, is um, there is a class of funds that are still focused on finding unicorns. So they are looking for the very large billion-dollar market opportunities and very fast growth, building very fast growth companies and the, the traditional venture capital model. But there is, you know, there are a thousand micro VCs out there right now, very small funds that are also, uh, some of them are working in the mode that they will do the early stage and some of them are, looking for an exit, early exit at a sub-50 million uh, range. Some of them are doing maybe, you know, two or three years and then getting, selling their stakes into the latter rounds, um, the larger rounds, let's say if there's a large Series B or Series C going on and they're exiting into that. So, um, how has your thinking evolved on that? Are you still focus purely on unicorns? You know, uh, it's a, I, I would say no. I mean, uh, well, first of all, in the first fund, uh, we have out of 20 companies that we invested in, two of them are already unicorns. Third one is on its way. And I'm keeping my fingers crossed. I think there will be a fourth unicorn also in, in, in the fund. So okay. as, the, as the hit rate goes of unicorns, I think uh, somebody told me that the best fund in the history of venture capital, which is Sequoia, has a 5% unicorn hit rate. We are we are already at about 15% and may go to 20%. So uh, so uh, so we are done very well. Having said that, that's not how, that's not how we look at it at all. I think uh, I think uh, our approach really is is it to uh, to you know look at is it you know, founder market fit. Our approach is to look at to see how, you know, how unique the insight that the founders have, mm -hmm. and and how and whether the market is is really big or not. One thing that we don't want to do, we have learned, is that uh, investing in small markets and and betting on small outcomes uh, is not any less risky than betting on big markets and big ambitions. And there are so many things that could go wrong if in a startup that the risk involved is, a, you know, in a, in a, in a, in a small outcome startup really is not that much. There's a different kind of risk, but the, it is nevertheless risky. The only exception I have found is 
is those markets which are not very big but are uh, but there is a massive barrier to entry because of technology so for instance uh, you know my previous uh, my previous industry which is electronic design automation in the semiconductor space where the domain knowledge is such a high premium yeah that uh, that if someone has solved this here very very tough problem even if the market is small i think the probability of you getting an exit and a decent exit is very very high mm-hmm. so i would make an exception for those kind of things but yeah. otherwise otherwise you see we look for uh, you know if someone comes and says you know i'm doing this 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 search and stuff and i think uh, uh, and i think one of these big companies will acquire me for 20 30 million dollars or 40 million dollars that's not the thing that excites us because there are a lot of things that could go wrong in a startup and if you are taking a risk on a startup it doesn't it doesn't necessarily uh, you don't have to limit it by uh, by the size of the potential market thank i'm going to switch my um, questions on a particular trend that we are following very closely which is the platform as a service trend So if you look at salesforce.com, salesforce has done a superb job of not just building a whole CRM portfolio of products. They've also built a great platform on which a lot of great companies have been built and they have acquired some of them, some of them have gone public. One of my favorite companies is Ziva, which uh, was built on the Salesforce stack. I mean, they this company spent like 4 million dollars and then they raised more money but they didn't really use it and and today there's this multi billion dollar awesome company right so um one of my interests is to see basically there are hundreds now of great saas companies in different domains that have achieved a certain amount of scale many of them are public many of them are going public right now um you know 100 million arr 200 million arr 500 million arr there's a and then there's a, a very large uh, percentage of companies that are in the 50 million arr and and growing uh, bucket i would love to see and and i've had conversations with a lot of ceos who are thinking along these lines is many of these companies have you know the the ability to create paths you know move from saas to paths within their general domain general ecosystem what are you seeing in the earlier stages are people are saas companies starting to think paths from the get go they may not they may not start as a paths company but are they thinking along these lines where because i think the 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 really big companies are going to be built in this model going forward you're right you're absolutely right i think not every saas company can become a a, a platform as a service i think uh, it 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 depends as you on uh, on some other uh, considerations and i think this this deserves to see a, a separate uh, a long discussion uh, we as you said it's very hard for some startup to start as a platform it's very no, no one is no, yeah no one is going to bet on you no one is going to bet their future or see on your platform uh so but having said that i think if you have the all the elements of a platform 
I think once you are established enough, in fact, you see, I have a, in, in our portfolio, we have a company that uh, now has about eight or 10 customers. And for those eight and 10 customers now, uh, it is bringing third party vendors onto their platforms. And if they cannot find those, they are building that functionality on top of their platform, which is not core to their SaaS offering in the first place. So I think uh, those, you know, this is how you take a baby step, that first you get a customer, first you get a customer committed to your service, and then you say, by the way, I noticed that this function is not getting done or you're dealing with third-party vendors and you have to go through the integration and management and all those dealing, you know, the negotiation and maintenance of the contract and stuff. Why don't you just do it through this platform? Either I'll get someone to, to write on top of my platform or I'll write it myself. And okay. that's how that journey starts. So we have one company who's, who's, who's taking that approach you see, as we speak right now. And I think it's very exciting. But by the way, uh, you know, it takes time. It takes a long, long time. It takes time, absolutely. Absolutely, it takes time. Uh, so talk a little bit about the unicorns in your portfolio. And, um, yeah, I'll, I'll ask more as I hear about them. Uh, so so which are the unicorns you're saying? Yeah, and what are they doing? What's, uh, you know, what's so, exciting about them? So, you know, I talked about, you see, one thing that, so let's talk about uh, three different categories I uh, I mentioned that we invest in. And we have a, a unicorn, a soon-to-be unicorn in all of those three things. One is uh, cloud infrastructure. So we are invested in a company called Aviatrix. Uh, and Aviatrix, the CEO is Steve Malani. Uh, he sold his previous company, Nicera, to VMware for $1.2 billion. Ooh, with, okay. with zero revenue, and uh, so so luckily this this company has revenues, and uh, so they do they do hybrid cloud uh, uh, you know hybrid cloud networking infrastructure, uh, doing very well. They're not a unicorn yet, but I think by the next round of funding they will be a unicorn. Uh, mm -hmm. So that's one. The second category I talked about was uh, enterprise software. So one of the companies we have invested in is Techion, uh, started by uh, by Jay Vijayan, who used to be the right-hand man of Elon Musk in Tesla. And uh, he is doing, uh, so he has a cloud-based uh, CRM for uh, for car dealerships worldwide. Uh, mm -hmm. And uh, he just raised $120 million at $1.2 billion uh, valuation about six months ago. And... Uh, and the third one is, uh, third category I mentioned was uh, using technology to disrupt very traditional industries. And in that category, uh, my one company is, uh, is a bra company called Third Love. And uh, they have, you know, somebody, one of the reasons Victoria's Secret is in bankruptcy is because of Third Love. Uh, direct to consumer uh, kind of a thing. You know, when somebody walks into Victoria's Secret showroom and picks up his undergarment and walks out, Victoria's Secret knows nothing about that person. Right. If, if you go to Third Love, uh, you know, you go there and you and you select in the process of selecting, see what is what might be the appropriate fit for you. 
they are collecting 30 data points on each woman and they have this this kind of data on 16 million americans so 480 million data points versus none uh, the advantage they have is similar to the advantage that google has as your other other companies so so this is a B2C, though. You said you, you're only doing B2B, but this is an this exception. Is, this, is, this is the only exception. Okay. And uh, we did it in the first one. Now we are not doing, uh, you know, we realize that, you know, these, these kind of things are available in the B2B disruption of our traditional industries, available in B2B format also. Yes. And what we realized was that the value that we bring to a B2C company is very little. So, so we decided not to invest in B2C anymore after that. So one um, trend that we are seeing on this category in uh, B2B SaaS is kind of companies do, that are starting with two-sided SaaS and then evolving into a SaaS-enabled marketplace. So vertical marketplaces, this is something uh, that you would find interesting. We don't really have the time to go deep into this, this trend. We have had sessions where we've gone deep into this trend with investors that are specializing in that. Um, and and, and I, I've seen quite a few companies in that, and I find it actually very interesting and a very intelligent uh, way to approach marketplaces. Huh. Okay. That's interesting. Um, is there anything else that I should have asked you that I didn't that you would like to cover in this session before we uh, start the entrepreneur pitches? Uh, no, I can't think of anything off the top of my head. Last question, actually, I think of something. Is there one, is there a SaaS company in your portfolio that will, with time, be a perfect SaaS play? Perfect pass play? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there's a company called Fortella. Uh, they, uh, they, right now, they are a SaaS company helping mm -hmm. the CMOs, uh, chief marketing officers, uh, look at all the activities marketing does, you know, with, within, you know, with the, with the viewpoint of revenue. Right now, yeah marketing organizers you know lead lead based kind of a thing or they do account based thing that they do trade shows they do this and this nothing tells them that if the ceo says hey we need to do 25 million dollars more with oil and gas companies in southwestern united states in q4 mm -hmm. what can you do and there are no tools that exist today for marketeers to optimize for that kind of an outcome, which is completely revenue-focused outcome. How do you mm -hmm. start from that? And then you see, work backwards and say, what are the things that marketing needs to do to accomplish that outcome? Mm -hmm. So so that's how that's their core offering today. But in the process, they had to build a massive data platform yeah. uh, that can take Mercato, Salesforce, uh, Anaplan, yeah. You know, all of those kind of different tools that exist to get data from all of them. And in the process, they discovered that there are all these 20, 30 marketing technology tools, they're all point tools. They all need to get their data from one of these underlying 
you know, uh, you know, of record. So yeah. why not, why not spare the the companies from all that uh, one by one by one kind of negotiation and integration, and instead just have a platform play. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Very interesting. And how far along is this company? They have. They are. They are still young. They are, they still have not even raised Series A. Uh, but uh, but they have about 10, 12 customers, including some big ones like Nokia, BMC, and Tipco, and all those kind of things. So uh, we are pretty bullish about them. And this is sounds like it's a large enterprise sale, right? So it's yes. like a, yes. Yes. a million dollar kind of uh, per per customer revenue, yeah? Not really. No, no, no. It's not that. It is enterprise, but it is a. But the the entering footprint is very very small. I think it's somewhere between fifty to hundred k, and then they, and then they keep adding. You say this service and that service, and that's how the footprint gets bigger. Okay, very interesting. You know, we do these. Um, we have a lot of media um, activity, and we do very detailed stories. So one of the thresholds we have is five million dollars in annual revenue. Once this company reaches $5 million in annual revenue, send them to us and we'll do a detailed story. We try to cover all the interesting trends. So, by the way, that offer exists for any of your companies. If they're already at $5 million revenue, come, uh, send them to us and we'll do uh, very extensive stories on them. Oh, okay. Hey, no, good to know that. All right. Well, thank you, Venk. It's great.